Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Root of BTN.com, and we've got a jam-packed episode for you today here on the show. We've got a triple header of interviews coming at you, three different discussions that all uh, are very diverse in their their contents and uh, a wide range of topics are covered, and we'll get right into them shortly so you have time to listen to all three. First up is a BTN play-by-play announcer. He does play-by-play for Fox as well, and he also is the radio voice of the Minnesota Twins. It's Corey Provis. Corey uh, has a long, decorated career in baseball radio and has done basketball and football for BTN for a number of years as well and has some cool stories that we get into in the next uh, half hour or so here on the show. I always love talking to baseball announcers because they you know, are so ingrained in the game. It's such a day-to-day personal relationship they have with their fans. And I was able to pull some of those stories and, and some of the uh, anecdotes from Corey's career path out of him in our discussion. And uh, he shared some cool stuff with us. So get to that in just a moment. And after Corey brought Harold Shelton back in the studio for another Stathead segment. If you listen to the show, you know Stathead is a segment we do with Harold, our researcher here at BTN, where we run through the current state of Big Ten, either football or in this case basketball, behind the numbers. Harold has a a great analytical mind and great way of conveying his knowledge, and he's able to put the uh, current snapshot of the season in perspective, and we did that for about 15 or 20 minutes after the interview with Corey Provis. And last but not least, we have the second edition of our new segment here on the show called Call for the Culture. Last week, we debuted this with um, one of our producers of the the podcast here, Colleen Degnan. Colleen uh, pitched this idea of having a culture, pop culture-oriented or more relevant to the current day segment here on the Take 10 Podcast. And I, of course, said, let's do it. And Colleen brought some fun, more outside of sports, outside the box discussions to the show. So we had a lot of fun doing that last week. Do it again this week. And um, it's going to continue to be a segment that we build as we move forward here on the Take 10 Podcast. So one quick run through. Once again, Corey Provis leads it off with the uh, longest discussion here on the show, about half hour. Then we have about two 15, 20-minute discussions, one with Harold Shelton, the stat hit segment, followed by Call for the Culture with Colleen, where we talk spot, uh, pop culture, sports, and the intersection of uh, those two entertainment avenues. So we will get right to Corey in just a moment. One final reminder, please subscribe to the Take 10 Podcast if you haven't already. Um, if you have not and you're just streaming this now on something like SoundCloud or one of the, the platforms, Be advised that you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Play, or if you uh, consume a lot of content on YouTube, go to the Big Ten Network YouTube channel as well, and you can find every episode of the Take 10 Podcast on our YouTube channel. It has its own playlist uh, called the Take 10 Podcast. So those are the places you can find the show. Um, You're in the right place if you're listening to this right now, so we'll get to the interviews that we have lined up. First up, it's BTN play-by-play man and radio voice of the Minnesota Twins, Corey Provis. That interview starts right now. I am very pleased to be joined by play-by-play announcer for BTN. He's also the radio voice of the Minnesota Twins of Major League Baseball. It's Corey Provis. You can follow him on Twitter at 
Corey Provis. Corey, how's it going? Hey, Alex, how are you, buddy? Doing great. And uh, this time of year, as as I know, you are quite the busy man uh, with your BTN responsibilities, kind of mixing in with some Minnesota Twin stuff that's getting rolling here. Take me through what's going on this time of year for you, your travel schedule, especially with, I see you tweeting about the Twins caravan that's winding through uh, the northern part of our country. How's that going? It's super fun. Uh, it's the most expensive and I think extensive caravan that, that exists in sports today and not just in baseball, but named the sport. It's been an annual tradition that the Twins have, have, have done since 1961, since, uh, since baseball began in the Twin Cities. And so uh, it's a two-week process and you go out on one leg uh, that takes about four to five days and you know, your leg will vary from year to year. Sometimes you're on the northern leg, and you may find yourself up in International Falls, which is at the Canadian border. Uh, sometimes you may be all the way in Minot, as far west as Minot, uh, you know, Sioux Falls, into Cedar Rapids, into you know parts of western Wisconsin. It's really uh, it's Twins territory is the Upper Midwest, so that's uh, that's what I've been busy doing. I uh, just got back from Cedar Rapids, so it's so after the baseball season ends, I kind of shut my brain off and I really start to lock in on on Big Ten and whether it's football, but certainly basketball. And now I have to slightly kind of you know tune out basketball just for a little bit, and my baseball bulb is back on. But now I'm kind of dealing with both th- simultaneously, so it's it's a lot of fun. So we have our our big Twins Fest uh, annual winter event coming up three days. Raises a lot of great money for the Twins Community Fund. And then a few more uh, basketball games for me before I head down to spring training. So I hear caravan. I I hear uh, bus trip. Is that accurate? Are you guys bussing around to all these these cities in Iowa, Minnesota, and the Dakotas and all that? Yeah, it's been three to four stops a day and school stops, uh, senior citizen centers, uh, you know, really a variety of different events that you partake in. And, yeah, you're traveling around in a bus and you're with a couple of players and staff and some Twins alums. And I was out with Jack Morris and a couple of uh, our young pitchers on Caravan uh, last week. So it's just uh, it's really fun and spreading goodwill, but also as I tell people, and we go pretty far out, you know, Minot's nine hours away from, from the Twin Cities, that this is the one time a year where the Twins come to you. So it's our pleasure to do that. So that's why it's fun doing Q&As and, and hear what fans want to ask and, and uh, hear what they're thinking about and uh, the upcoming team. Do you guys get sick of each other at all being on those long bus trips? Are there any, uh, you know, annoyances that, that bubble up to the surface? Because we do the, the BTN bus tour in the summer, so I, I know how that kind of dynamic goes. Is it uh, is it pretty good natured on there? Yeah, we have fun. It's not, what gets old is that you you have kind of the same program, and it's really my responsibility to, to lead the discussions. And I feel like it's it's just become so redundant that we're having the same program, you know, three times a day for four straight days. That it's my job to just kind of lighten it up a little bit and loosen things up a little bit. And a lot of that is is based on the crowd who's there. And generally speaking, the, the night programs where there may be, you know, 200 people there or 2,000 people there. It all depends on the city and the venue. Uh, those are generally, Alex, more of the hot stove kind of conversations where you're asking, you know, more baseball-centric related questions about the roster and about game planning and all that stuff. Whereas the school staffs, you know, they're not really too concerned about Miguel Sano's OPS. They just want to hear about, hey, what was it like when you were in eighth grade? And did you have... Advice you pass along to somebody who's an aspiring athlete, whether it's a, a young boy, a young girl, name the sport. Advice you pass along to that to, to that teenager, to that kid, 
you know, thinking back to your own childhood days. You just kind of cater the conversation depending on, on your audience and where you're at in the program. Yeah, much like we do on this podcast with uh, the guest that's on and, and the audience or school that might be listening. Uh, so, Corey, give me the scouting report on the Twins' upcoming year. I'm more of a NL guy myself, but uh, what, what kind of season are we looking at for Minnesota? You know, I think two years ago, they, they maybe, not maybe, I think they did outperform expectations and they, they reached the postseason and they had that one-game wildcard game uh, with the Yankees and lost. Uh, but And then there was some optimism, though, based on that going into 2018. And the Twins got off to a decent start. They, they were 5-3 and three to begin the year, and then Mother Nature just wreaked havoc on, on the schedule. And I, I really sent the Twins into a tailspin where they went six or seven days without playing. Uh, there was a four-game series with the White Sox at Target Field. They got the first game in. And then there were three straight snowouts, and then the team was going down to San Juan uh, for a two-game series with the Indians. So they went like six days without playing, and the last guy I'd want to see that early in the season without having the repetition of playing every day is Corey Kluber, and they saw him and it didn't do too well. And that just kind of, after that, they won the next day, but after that they had a miserable road trip. They, they got swept in, in Tampa, they got swept at Yankee Stadium, and they endured a pretty lengthy losing streak that was really hard to ever come back from. That being said, I, I like this lineup. I think the lineup is, is is the strength of this team. The additions of Nelson Cruz and Jonathan Scope and C.J. Crone brings a lot of home run power uh, to this lineup. So offensively, this is a team that should hit home runs. They're going to strike out a lot, but who doesn't in today's game? You know, the, the starting staff does it does it does it match? You know, arm by arm with the Indians? No. I still think the Indians are the team to beat. They've earned that title as uh, as the three-time AL Central champion now. And they're that good. And that starting staff is really good. But they've also lost some pieces with that lineup and in their bullpen. So, you know, the wind variance, I think some of the projections for the Twins, it could be 75, it could be 90. And I, I think it could be 90 if, uh, you know, Byron Buxton plays in a way that we saw at the end of 2017. And if Miguel Sano performs in a way that we saw at the beginning of 2017. So it's not fair to put it on two guys, but it, but that's how I view it, that it's incumbent upon Buxton in center and Sano in third just performing and stepping up and, and living up to some of the potential that that we all think that they that they still have inside of them to produce, to be solid, solid major league players, not just your average major leaguer, but bona fide stars. And if they do that, then the Twins could, could win 90 games and win the Central. Yeah, you mentioned that road trip and the rocky start to the season just with all the weather. That, that was nuts. I remember just being in my apartment in, in uh, Wrigleyville in April, and it was snowing, and the Cubs were snowed out on their opening day and it was just wild and I don't I hope we never see a April like that again in, in Major League Baseball um anyway baseball's coming up soon enough but we're still in the thick of basketball season here in January which as we said at the top of the show you call for us so so far this season uh where's what are some of the games you've called where have uh BTN's responsibilities taken you so far throughout the conference well I'm very appreciative with my baseball travels and I have two young kids that you know, I, I, they, the BTN tries to schedule you know, me with many gopher games, and I, and I really appreciate that. I, I really do enjoy, number one, I love going to the barn. I just think it's such a great venue, and, and I love the venues in the Big Ten. It's it's part of the reason why Big Ten basketball is so appealing and so exciting is that just the, 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 the settings are, are old, and they're historic, and they're passionate, they're loud. 
and they provide great venue for sport. And so uh, the barn certainly is that when it's loud and when it's packed. And and we've seen some good crowds. And now I'm going to call the Wisconsin game in, in Minneapolis in a couple of weeks, and that'll probably be, I'd imagine, sold out. Um, considering how you know Gophers played in Madison, I think Wisconsin fans will show up. But Gopher fans, after uh, after the Gophers won the axe in football and women's basketball is doing pretty well against them, and men's basketball is doing pretty well. I, I think from a Gopher standpoint, they'd like to finish off the, the year with one more win against their longtime rival. So uh, you know, I, some highlights for me. I just called a lot of close games, and that's kind of how it's been. In the Big Ten, I mean, even uh, I was out in Vancouver, you know, calling the, the Gopher games out there and Gabe Calford that game-winning shot, which was fascinating. Uh, calling Northwestern DePaul when DePaul was dominating that game, and the Northwestern went on a twenty-five nothing run, stunning, a twenty-five nothing run to come back and and win that game. Um, there's been some really compelling games that I've had a chance to, to work in uh, Minnesota, Penn State, not too long ago. That was a one-point game where Lamar Stevens had a chance to win it at the buzzer. Jordan Murphy made one of the better individual plays I think we've seen from any Big Ten player this year that put back off a missed shot. Uh, that slam dunk that he had late in the second half was compelling. So there's just been some really, really fun games that, uh, that I've been a part of uh, calling this year. And, uh, and I love it. I got a few more uh, before my season concludes. Yeah, it's been the theme this year. It's just this ultra-competitiveness throughout the conference top to bottom. And uh, one of the games you were at when I ran into you was the Northwestern Illinois game in Evanston here up the road. I think when I ran into you, you were eating an orange or some sort of citrusy fruit, and you couldn't shake my hand because your hands were, you know, sticky from the orange. So is that your uh, your snack of choice when you're calling a game at halftime? Yeah, I, I do that. I like the small little clementine oranges. Uh, I'll munch on that at halftime. I often make myself like a. Like especially at home, if I have a game at, at, at the barn, I'll make like a peanut butter sandwich and just munch on that at halftime. Yeah, I just kind of, yeah, I just I watch what I eat when I can. But uh, yeah, I, I do like those small little oranges, and that's a, that's a good halftime snack. All right, Corey, loose transition here with the orange uh, theme to ask you about your background because when I have sports media professionals on the podcast, I like hearing about their paths in the industry and all that, and. Uh, I'm going to lead in here by saying I think you're unique in the sense that I'm pretty sure the, you're the only sports journalist to come out of Syracuse ever, right? Is that Yeah, is that groundbreaking. Right, kind of the, the Jackie Robinson of uh, broadcasters, if you will, to, to kind of be the first one ever out of Syracuse to, to reach <laughs> uh, you know, professional success. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very proud of where I went to school. Uh, I really am. And um, it's so neat. Just when you think you, you've met everybody uh, in some way, with, with a Syracuse degree, you, you find more. And I just, it's, 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 I have a lot of pride. And, uh, when I, when I see that, and it could be, you know, some folks in the trucks, men and women in the truck, uh, who are also Syracuse grads. And it's, it's really nice. And I, I, I kind of enjoy when someone asks, where'd you go to school? And I say, Syracuse. They're like, oh, of course, another one. I'm like, it's, it's a great place to, to, to learn and get better. And you should have an amazing tape. I don't even know if they're using tape anymore. Whatever they're using now to, to produce the reel upon graduating, you just have a great place to start. And um, they, they provided me an opportunity to, to pursue my dreams, and I'm very proud of my Syracuse degree. Yeah, what did you do while at Syracuse or maybe just after Syracuse that kind of served as your lead into the industry? What maybe was your initial break into the industry? Well, my, my first break was back in high school. Um, I had a chance to, it's now, it's now, um, 
you know, it's Chicago. It's changed so many times. I think it's NBC Sports Chicago and yep. it was Comcast Chicago. But back when I was growing up in the Chicagoland area, it was Sports Channel Chicago. And that's where the Bulls were on and then the White Sox and then the Blackhawks. They, they were on Sports Channel Chicago. And my senior year of high school, they began a show called Schoolyard Jam. And it was a monthly news magazine show focusing on high school athletics. And it wasn't just based in Chicago, but throughout the state. And I just happened to see a flyer in my uh, in my high school about, hey, if you're interested in sportscasting, you know, there's this brand new show and they're looking for, for reporters. If you're interested in auditioning, you know, call this number and set up an audition. And so I, I did that. And I auditioned a few times at, uh, at my local cable uh, outlet uh, in my hometown, and then that went well, and then I got a chance to really uh, audition at uh, at their at their office at the at the building, and uh, they were in Oak Park River Forest before they moved down to the Merchandise Mart, where they're still at now. And I just I, I got a chance to be a reporter on the show, and, and and they used me quite often. And so I was 17 years old, and I had I had tape. I had a tape uh, from the number three market in the country. Of doing of doing reporting on a, on a really big time show, uh, so that was my first big break. And then when I when I went to college, I began uh, working at WAR, which is a uh, which is a, a wonderful station in, in at Syracuse. And the sports staff is all students, and that's where you know Tarico worked, and that's where Dave Pash worked, and uh, you know Costas and all you know, everybody, the whole you know Mike you go on and on. Tony Caridi and Bill Roth and Adam Shine and Anton Carlon and Carter Blackburn and all these people that uh, that are friends of mine. That we all kind of began there at WAR, and you start off, you know, doing sportscasts because it's an NPR station uh, during the days. So you do uh, morning sportscasts, afternoon sportscasts, and then after after some reps, and eventually after you got cleared to air. You started to do practice tapes of calling Syracuse football, basketball, and lacrosse. And you'd sit in the stands, and, and you'd just practice, and we would sit with a microphone and do a tape recorder and, and just call a game. And eventually, you'd, you'd hand that off to a sports director, and that would go to a news director, and then eventually you got cleared to, to call your first game. So I, I called my first lacrosse game. Never saw lacrosse in my life until I got to college, and I called lacrosse my sophomore year, and the basketball began, I believe, my junior year and football began my junior year. And then, so I spent uh, my sophomore, junior and senior years calling games at Syracuse football, basketball, and lacrosse. Awesome. And then uh, reading up on your history, you were the uh, Cubs pre and post guy for WGN, correct? And I'm a big Cubs fan. So this was particularly intriguing to me. I was there for two years. Um, two years. I was, I was doing UAB football, basketball, and baseball with former Indiana head coach, Mike Davis, actually uh, in 2006. And then I was only there for nine months when a job opened up at uh, WGN. Andy Mazur left the Cubs broadcast and joined the Padres broadcast. And uh, then I passed on that opportunity. And, yeah, I was, I was 28 years old. I was traveling the country with my favorite team growing up. And uh, those were really good Cub teams uh, with, with Derek Lee and uh, Ryan Terrell and Mike Fondo and Carlos Zambrano and Aramis Ramirez and Alfonso Soriano. Uh, Ryan Dempster, Kerry Wood was closing. Uh, Dempster was starting. Uh, it was just a lot of great players in two playoff years, and uh, especially the 2018 
they had home field throughout the National League playoffs, but they got swept by the Dodgers in the opening round, which was just a stunning, stunning development. But anyway, it was just a, a great experience for me, and uh, you know, I got to hang and learn with Pat Hughes and Ron Santo, and uh, you know, I, I met my wife in 2008, and the reason I married her, not the only reason I married her, but Ron Santo was a big reason why I married her, and uh, that that's something that I think about every day. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? How was Ron Sano sure. involved? Well, Ron was, I was 28 when I joined the, the, the WGN of the Cubs in 2007, and, uh, and I was single, and Ron was, we come to all those day games, the 120s on Fridays, the 1205s, 1210s, whatever they were on Saturdays, so you had your nights, and so Ronnie was always curious about, you know, what I did last night, what was I doing tonight, and I said I was going out, he didn't believe me. He said, you're probably just going out with your brother. I said, no, I'm going out. I don't believe you. I said, Ronnie, I'm going out. I want to meet these girls. Okay. So if, if it was good, if, you know, it wasn't date one, hey, you know, the cup game, it, it was something that if I felt like, ah, this is somebody that I think is interesting enough to, after a couple of dates, they'd come up to the booth and they'd meet Ronnie and Pat and Ronnie would, you know, give them the once over, ask a few questions. Some were appropriate. Many were not. But we just kind of laugh and, and, and go about our business. And then around August 2008, uh, I brought this, this school teacher up. And Ronnie, same drill. Ronnie met her. How you doing? Everything good? And then after a few minutes, she left. And then he, he turned around and he said, that's the best one you've ever brought in here. And I married her. That's amazing. And for me, you know, Ron Sano is someone – that I grew up listening to starting with probably the 2003 season was the first one I really remember. And that's just a familiar voice. Even you imitating him there was cool to hear. And that's obviously a amazing story. And then you running off those names of the players. It's just like my whole childhood baseball experience flashing right before my eyes uh, again. And since you mentioned Ryan Dempster, I forgot to ask uh, in the caravan line of questioning, has anything been said on these caravans to rival the Chris Bryant, St. Louis is boring comments that are just still kind of sweeping social media and the internet right now and no. angering rival fan bases? That, 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 that may come this weekend at, at the Twins Fest uh, event where there's more Q&As, but that, that stuff doesn't come out too much. Uh, you know, once in a while, you know, something like that will come out. But, but look, I mean, I think that, our, that the Twins players right now, they – they respect you know, the champ, the champ in the division. It's Cleveland. And until somebody takes them out, the Cleveland Indians are the team to beat. You know, the White Sox, they, they could be a team that, that's on the rise here this year. Certainly if they add Manny Machado, then they're, they're going to be a, they're going to be a tough team. Uh, they've got a lot of young talent. That's uh, some has arrived. More talent is coming. You know, Tigers are rebuilding. The Royals are rebuilding. So the division, it was the worst in baseball last year. It's probably going to be the weakest division again this year, just simply from wins and losses. But, you know, I don't think anybody from a twin standpoint is going to say anything to ignite the Indians, uh, you know, or their fans, or their players, in a way that Chris Bryant did about uh, the Cardinals and Yadier Molina. Well, Corey, I'm sure you have a ton of great Cubs stories from those days, and maybe we'll have to hash it out one day uh, down the road here. But I do have one more cubs really question for you on the podcast. Have you been back to the Wrigley Field area lately and just seen how it's changed since when you covered the team? Yeah, I went, uh, I went to one of the World Series games. I went to game four in 2016. There were still a lot of renovations going on outside the ballpark. Uh, I did, with the Twins, uh, played the Cubs last year at Wrigley uh, during the regular season. So, yeah, I got, I got a 
great tour of uh, of everything from the clubhouse to the office building um, down Clark. Uh, it's it's amazing, and I know it's still ongoing. And you know, even the video boards and seeing all that uh, that that wasn't there when I was there. And I, I think it's just a tremendous place. It's a tremendous place because it still has the charm. It still has the history. But I think it needed it needed work. And um, you know, I'm, I'm I don't I'm not still up to date on all the renovations that that are still left that they still want to knock out and, uh, and fix uh, before they're all done with with the project. But I, 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 I am, I'm just amazed at just the, the engineering part of it, how they were able to build the, the Cubs clubhouse underground. I mean, just, just all through dirt that they had, the, they had the brilliance and the intelligence and the skill set to do that underground. I, I just found, I found so fascinating. Well, you get a backstage look to a lot of ballparks and you come from pretty Nice one yourself up there in Minnesota. I was lucky enough to work the 2014 All-Star Game when I was still in college. And Target Field is, is awesome. I, I really enjoy it. So I'm, I'm jealous that you get to go to work there every day in the spring and summer. I love it. Uh, it never gets old. And uh, I, I think, you know, the, the attendance has dropped off a little bit. Not to say the novelty's worn off, but the attendance has dropped off a little bit just based on the team's performance the last handful of years but still you're going to have people that'll come out you know minnesota it can be really tough in the winter time uh but they're going to enjoy a really nice night out uh when you when the calendar gets to mid-may it's awesome it's just a great ballpark and um there are times when you say man the roof would have been really nice but it, you know you just kind of you just know that good days are coming and when you have those good days you're so glad there's not some obstruction above you that takes away from that gorgeous view above right field when you can look at the downtown skyline and just kind of it's just a great setting uh, as you get to the games even in August as the sun is setting it just kind of reflects off uh, some of the windows down the right field line it, it's just a beautiful beautiful setting and Jim Polad and the Polad family who owns the team and the Polad family's owned the team uh, since the 80s. Uh, they're always tinkering with it uh, year after year that there's something new and they're adding to it. Uh, there's a whole new uh, plaza out in right field to uh, enhance. That's kind of the interesting thing about Target Field that you've never been. The main entrance uh, is, is, is through right field. And they have just completely opened that up, realizing that that was such a funnel point for people to, to come to games. It got a little tight. They spent a lot of money this offseason to enhance that and widen that experience. They're adding kind of a, a turf uh, area for kids to play and, and run around and some wiffle ball before the game, during the game, after the game that's going to enhance the experience even more. One question that I like to ask when I have someone with a kind of a diverse schedule and set of responsibilities like yourself, I think I asked this of uh, Brian Anderson, who has, has a similar role just doing baseball and then also Big Ten football and hoops, is – just about the, the travel schedule and, and how, you know, baseball is an everyday grind and you're kind of embedded in the team. And then once you get to the fall and winter, you are kind of on your own bouncing between venues in college towns and, and you know, on Big Ten campuses. So it's not necessarily what do you prefer, but, but what are some of the, the differences and, and I guess things you take away from your travel schedule in different times of year? I mean, the travel schedule is different. You know, obviously, Major League Baseball. You know, we're, we're spoiled. We, 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 you know, we stay on the in these beautiful, amazing hotels, and we fly on private charters. It's just a, it's an amazing. You don't touch your bags. And then when you get to Big Ten, you're not always traveling to the most glamorous cities. You're going to college towns. So that that's that's different. 
but what I love about it is, and this is, I don't know if it's, it, it totally answers your question, but what I love about getting away from baseball and getting away from the Twins is it's a challenge for me to prove myself to a fan base that doesn't know me. That maybe they've seen me a little bit, they've hurt me a little bit, but I have to win them over. And that, to me, I love. I love that challenge of trying to prove to that team's fan base, and, and it may be both fan bases, that I've done my research, that, I, that I'm prepared to broadcast your team's game that particular day, that particular night, because I've studied and I really want to do a good job. So it gets me out of my comfort zone, both from a medium standpoint, getting off radio and getting away from the twins and challenging myself with television, but also trying to prove to fan bases that don't hear me for, you know, 162 games that, uh, that, I, that I've done my work and I'm prepared to perform. And hopefully I do that uh, when I'm calling your team's games. All right. That was a great answer actually to a poorly developed and, Ask question, but you definitely got what I was, what I was getting at there. Um, Corey, before I let you go, just a couple of Big Ten general questions. Uh, just being in all the cities and, and venues that you've been, I know you, you get to a lot of Gopher games and hang around the Twin Cities a lot, but I wanted your opinion on, first, the best Big Ten food city, and maybe if you have a couple of uh, recommendations for that particular city, that'd be great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher the name because I, I don't get to go to Ann Arbor uh, too often, but when I do, what's the famous deli? Is it Zingerman's? Zingerman's, yep. Is it Zingerman's, okay. So that to me is, man, I, that if, if I had Ann Arbor every week or if I had them once a month, uh, my, my BTN per game would be shot uh, <laughs> because I would just go there all the time. So I really enjoy going there. That That's that's among my, my favorite meals. Um you know, I so so going there is always fun, and you know, being from the Chicagoland area, when I when I can get a Northwestern game, uh, I try to work it out in between shoot rounds to go to Sarkis, uh, which is right down the street, a famous uh, cafe. That uh, if you're familiar with the story of Sarkis and the sandwiches, those are those are some of my favorite spots uh, when I, when I travel, and if I have the time to to grab a bite to eat, those are those are two of my favorites. Two of my favorites as well, and my friends from the suburbs here have dragged me to Sarkis, and, and it's really good. And then I was in Ann Arbor a couple of days ago, didn't make it to Zingerman's, but uh, when we go there in the summer, we usually get that ordered. But another place in Ann Arbor, next time you're there, you should try out. Uh, I just went there for the first time. It's called Savis, Savis Cafe. I think I'm pronouncing okay. it right. It's right there on State Street, and I, it was. I just kind of happened to walk in, and it was really, really good. See, so. here's the thing about that, though. I just... I, I, I don't want to take a chance on something when I know if I'm only there, if I only have one shot, that, I, I, that I'm not there multiple days and I only have one meal that I could eat on my own and I have some time. I really want to go off off the reservation because I, I, I want to go with the slam dunk that I know that this has been a proven success. Now, if I live there, then, I, then I'm be, I'd be more adventurous, but it's just so good. And uh, I rarely kind of go off when I know I have just one chance to get it right. So that's why I, I kind of stick to what I know. I'm mostly the same way, and I'll clarify. I had been uh, kind of asking for recommendations, mining for recommendations with some friends that had gone to Michigan. They had mentioned that place, and then I just happened to walk by it. I didn't look it up or anything. So it did. I did know what I was getting into. Um, but, yeah, I'm kind of the same way, especially when you know, you're kind of parachuting in and getting out. All right, Corey, one more question, and then I'll let you go. Um, what is your favorite Big Ten venue? And it could be either football or basketball, but uh, what's what's a place that 
stands out to you? You know, my my favorite venue. Uh, I, I love doing Big Ten games in Bloomington. Uh, the history of, of that place just gets me every time. Uh, so that that to me is up there. I've never done I've never done a conference game with the students around at Michigan State. So I've never seen you know the the real Tom Izzo and the Izzo effect with the students there and for a big, big conference game. So I haven't really had that experience yet. Uh, that that would be kind of on, on my BTN bucket list to do, you know, one of those games. But, uh, you know, Indiana, I, I, I going back to that, that, that to me is a real special place to go. Uh, that when I, when I can is, is cool. I love going to Mackey. Uh, Mackey has been as I just, I just going there for big 10 games it's packed. It's loud. The students all get it. Uh, and I've seen some great games there. I, I called a Minnesota-Purdue game a couple years ago in uh, early January where Minnesota won in overtime. And it was Eric Curry's freshman year. Uh, he played really well in that overtime period. Just seeing Mackey at its best, uh, and, it, and it often is, but seeing it for a conference game, those, those are moments that uh, being a Big Ten fan, you never forget. All right, can't go wrong with any of those choices for sure. Corey, you've been very generous with your time. Really appreciate you jumping on, especially during a busy time of year. And uh, we'll be listening the rest of the Big Ten season for sure and uh, might have to check out a Twins game or two this spring and summer. By all means, uh, it's freezing as we're standing now, but it's going to warm up at some point. It has to, right? has to, Alex. <laughs> has to. we got a long way Thanks to go. Thanks for having me on, man. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, thanks once again to Corey for joining me. Uh, a lot of interesting nuggets there to, to dig into. And to mention at the top of the show, I really like talking to baseball announcers just because of that connection they have with the team. And, and just by you know the, the nature of the season, the, the sheer number of stories that are bound to pop up or experiences that are bound to happen because you're embedded for like 200 days with a an organization um and, and you can kind of hear some of that coming out with his cub stories and um you know it's cool to hear about the twins caravan as well and talk big 10 locales venues eateries and, and sports as well so uh cory was great looking forward to having him back on at some point in the future all right jump ahead now to our discussion with harold shelton it's our regular stat head segment if you listen to the show before you know the drill harold and i talked behind the numbers of big 10 sports a lot of hoops talk in this this uh, particular episode, and won't make you wait any longer for it. So, get right to it. It's Take Ten podcast discussion with ETN researcher Harold Shelton, and the interview starts right now. All right, very pleased to be rejoined by BTN's in-house stat head, Harold Shelton. We're back in the lab, talking Big Ten hoops. Uh, we're in the thick of it. Late January, H. What's up, man? Fun time of year. It is. You know, it's crazy that, you know, we're going, we're at the 20-game schedule and we're almost halfway home. Yeah, it's nuts. It doesn't really feel like we're that deep into the season, but here we are. It's almost February. You know, if it was last year, like we'd be thinking Big Ten tournament already, but the schedule pushes it back a couple weeks this year. So it's a, kind of a golden, uh, golden part of the season. We're in the thick of it, like I said. And let's start our discussion off at the top right now with the, I think, far and away, best teams in the conference Michigan and Michigan State we uh all know on this podcast if you listen regularly that you're a Michigan State guy Michigan looks a little vulnerable right now so who do you think is better at this point in the season the Spartans or Wolverines 
Uh, I'd say Michigan State's playing better. I think the last time I was on, I was I gave the edge to Michigan. Uh, but it seems like Michigan's had some issues scoring. That The defense has always been there, which is a big reason why they won the Minnesota game. But offensively, you know, Charles Matthews and Brad Dacus have kind of struggled. I don't know if that's Iggy hitting the freshman wall, but – you know, the guys that they normally rely on for scoring with Poole and Matthews, those guys have struggled. Uh, if not for John Teske, they might have lost two straight at this point. So Michigan State has been playing on all cylinders. I mean, Cassius Winston looks like the Big Ten player of the year right now, and they're getting contributions from everybody despite the injuries to Langford and Kyle Arns. They've had Kenny Goins step up. You know, freshman Aaron Henry and Gabe Brown have slid right into the lineup and provided uh, crucial minutes. Matt McQuaid probably top three defensive player of the year candidate in the league. So I'd say Michigan State's probably the more well-rounded team right now. So lay out this run that Michigan State's on for me right now. What are some of the numbers? Because I remember their last loss was against Louisville in the ACC Challenge. Their conference winning streak dates back to last year. I think they've won like 12 in a row. Uh, Put this stretch kind of in perspective from a stat head point of view. Yeah, so it's weird because when when you think about what happened with Michigan State last year when they lost – to Michigan in the Big Ten tourney semis, and then they lost to Syracuse in the second round. It didn't really feel like a team that won 30 games, but they did. And so now you look back, they've won 20 straight Big Ten regular season games, which is the third longest streak of all time. And they've got 12 straight since that Louisville loss, which they didn't have Matt McQuay for, by the way. They probably would have won that game if he played. So They've been on a roll, and they've won 11 straight Big Ten regular season road games, which is unheard Incredible. of. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's a harder thing to do in college basketball than win on the road in conference play. And they found a way to win 11 in a row since losing to Ohio State early last January. Um, their last Big Ten regular season loss came at home in Michigan in mid-January of last year. So, I mean, it's been a, over a calendar year since they've lost a Big Ten regular season road game. It's pretty incredible. I like Aaron Henry a lot. Watching him come on has been fun. Is Michigan State going to be a better team when Langford gets back? I'll be curious to see how they work him in. Uh, I think Josh Langford definitely is a guy who can get his own shot, and Michigan State doesn't have as many of those kind of guys. If it's not Winston orchestrating the offense and – know getting guys in spots they don't have too many that can go get their own but I think Henry is a better wing defender than Langford I think he deserves 20-25 minutes a game but when Langford's ready he is a scorer and those 15 points a game will help I'll be curious to see uh, how Izzo manages the minutes and works him back in yeah we're taping this on Thursday afternoon so fun one tonight between the Spartans and Iowa another team that's playing well so we won't talk about that because it'll be outdated uh bring up Michigan again they Suffered the first loss of the season this past weekend at Wisconsin. Mentioned they look kind of vulnerable. And uh, Wisconsin, a team that looked a little shaky for a stretch there, picked up a huge win against Michigan. That'll be huge come Selection Sunday if there's even a question about them getting in. And then what fascinates me is this uh, winning streak they're on against Illinois. They're on a 14-game winning streak against Illinois that they uh, got number 14 on Wednesday night against the Illini. And, and it's just a stretch of domination, one school over another. I think is it's record setting, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's it's definitely the longest active streak uh, by one Big Ten team over another, and I think it's the most consecutive losses by Illinois against one single Big Ten opponent. Okay, yeah, because when that number was tossed out last night on post game show, 
you know, I, I went to a lot of these Illinois-Wisconsin games in college, and, you know, there's always, as a fan base or a team that you follow, it's like, oh, this school never beats, like, Illinois can never beat this school, or Team X can never beat this school. Legit, this decade, Illinois can't beat Wisconsin. It's fascinating to me that it, one of those games, like, an upset wouldn't happen, but Wisconsin continues that domination, um, and, and they're in pretty good shape now, right? Heading into yeah, I would February. think so. I mean, there was some cause for concern, you know, when they lost to Minnesota and they lost to Purdue, but those aren't bad losses according to, you know, the net rankings. And so it was just a matter of, you know, bouncing back and making sure you don't, you know, lose a game to Penn State or Rutgers or something like that. Uh, they had they did more than enough in non-conference play, in my opinion. I think the Michigan win is just kind of a, an additional feather in the cap for seeding. But the win over NC State, the win over Oklahoma on a neutral court, I mean, they, they did really good work in non-conference. So this was just a boost. Okay, so they're in that group of teams that is playing pretty good ball right now. I think Iowa's in there, Maryland as well, and then Purdue, which we'll get to in a little bit. But there's also now a group of teams that – was when you saw those graphics on screen, kind of all non-conference leading to conference play, you know, the, the potential 10 tournament teams getting in, the overall strength of the conference just by nature of the, the depth and quality of the teams, 1 through 10. A few of those teams now are in a little bit of trouble. Um, Indiana and Ohio State have both lost five in a row. Nebraska's not playing great right now. Uh Ohio State, Nebraska, two of those teams, I think the catalyst of this whole thing or, or the, the loss that they'll look back on and shake their head is both those teams lost to Rutgers, and that is hurting those teams right now. So let's kind of get into this danger zone right now for some of these teams and, and tell me which team maybe you're worried least about and which one has some work to do to kind of get back in the good graces of uh, the selection committee and the, I guess, advanced rankings. Uh, I'd say right now Nebraska's probably in better shape just because they're so much higher than Ohio State in the net as we speak. Uh, I believe Ohio State's 46, and, you know, they've lost five in a row. They're just not playing well. Uh, I think when they started the season out so strong with the wins over Cincinnati and Creighton, like those are solid wins, but we've seen Creighton not be as Mm -hmm. great, which has kind of hurt Nebraska too. But just the way that they've played – um, they, they can't really shoot it as well. They lost a key bench piece in Kyle Young for the year. Caleb Wesson can't stay out of foul trouble. So this has kind of been, in their, la- in their last five losses, it's kind of been the same old story, and you kind of wonder if this is who they are. Uh, as for Nebraska, we know how great they are at home. So as long as they can pick up a couple of these top teams at home, I think that will help right the ship. Um, I think with the Big Ten being as deep as it is, uh, ten and ten, eleven and nine record should probably be fine for them. Sure. And speaking, you know, still on these three teams, Ohio State was one that coming into the season. This is about what I expected. The the, the way they're playing right now, just because they lost so much from last year, the program's in great shape. I think because they have a ton coming in, and they've even this year shown them capability of beating some good teams. So this doesn't really surprise me in terms of the Buckeyes, but Indiana is one that I'm, I just can't figure out. I'm not so sure on it. What do you – I guess how do you diagnose their problems? Why do you think they are, uh, you know, kind of hot and cold? And, and is it as simple as the, the finicky injury kind of threw them off balance? Or what's, what's going on with Indiana right now, and how do you project them going forward? 
Uh, seems like the big problem with Indiana, I mean, they can't shoot the three right now. And, you know, I think before entering the Northwestern game, they were shooting 28% from three during their first uh, four losses, and it got worse from that game. Uh, Romeo Langford has kind of been hit or miss. That's kind of his biggest weakness is the exactly. three. Exactly. Yeah. He, he can't shoot the three as of right now. Uh, the only consistent player they have is Jawan Morgan. Uh, I definitely think fantasy being out for a period of time hurt them. But if you can't shoot threes, you got big problems. And Morgan is really their only consistent big, and they're not a overly big team as it is. So they get hurt on the glass. You know, I think they were getting out rebounded by over six a game uh, during this losing streak, and it's gonna get even. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna schedule right continue, now. Considering they have Michigan coming up, they're at Michigan State coming up, so they've. They're kind. Of, I won't say they're running out of time. There's a long way to go, but that skid it, it's going downhill fast, and they need to figure out a way to pull off an upset. Yeah, that Northwestern game is really tough loss when you look at the resume. Like you said, Michigan. Is coming up next for them at Michigan State, and Rutgers is sandwiched in between the, those with a uh, meeting at Iowa, reverse Iowa, at home. And we've down already the seen three Rutgers has gotten a couple there. teams right, at the rack That's no picnic going to Rutgers either. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if Indiana can kind of buckle down here and turn this thing around. And then Ohio State, Nebraska, the other teams we were talking about, they play each other, right, coming up on Saturday, yep. I believe. Yeah, so, that, I mean, that game could, could chart the course for the rest of the season – I won't say it's you know a must win for either team, but it's going to be certainly important. I don't think Nebraska necessarily uh, might be more important for Ohio State mm-hmm. at this point. I mean, when you lose five in a row, you kind of need to get a quality road win uh, to kind of help balance things out. And just kind of the way they've been playing, they're kind of stuck in a malaise right now. And maybe a win like that could help jumpstart their season again. All right, before we wrap up, want to uh, talk a little bit about Purdue because. One, I want to give you some credit because a couple weeks ago we sat here and I was looking at Purdue's record and kind of doing the eye test of it and looking at their upcoming schedule and I said Purdue might be in a little bit of trouble here. You reassured me and said, no, Purdue's probably going to be straight because they have a good position in the net rankings in Ken Palm and sure enough, Purdue is playing some really great ball right now. They are on a really nice streak and your prediction has come true. So... How have they done it, and what's their prognosis going forward? Uh, can they keep it going? So it, it's funny how things work. Evan Boudreau gets hurt against Michigan State, which means they have to play Trevion Williams, and all he does is get double-doubles now. It's been great. I mean, if, if Boudreau doesn't get hurt in that game, they don't put Williams in. I mean, for a while he was only playing, you know, 10 minutes a game, if that. And now – I'd say over their five or six game win streak, he's playing over 20 minutes a game and he's averaging around a double double. And so now you have a guy you could throw the ball to in the post. It's not just all Carson Edwards. And if you just let him eat, you, he, you know, he'll kill you. And if you try to double, they've got shooters with Ryan Klein and Grady Eifert's making shots now. You know, Joe Eastern's kind of finding a rhythm where he can, you know, attack you off the bounce or shoot that little floater in the lane. I mean, and you know they're going to guard you. They always guard you uh, under Matt Painter. And so when you have that and then you got a guy like Carson who can go get you 36 on the road like he did against Wisconsin, I mean, you got a really good team. And that game on Sunday, like if they get Michigan State, that becomes a race again. And I think we, we can't count Purdue out in that. Yeah, so they won 7-8, playing really good ball. Travion Williams, 
you know, breakthrough has been fun to see. And I want to hit one last point that Purdue kind of illustrated in terms of not panicking because the rankings that the committee is using, same rankings you were looking at a few weeks ago and Purdue was sitting at, you know, eight and six or whatever it was, it's kind of going to help the Big Ten going down the road, you've pointed out, because despite these losing streaks and this tough stretch for some of those teams that we were talking about, some of them are still in pretty good shape. And you think that it's a pretty good year for the committee to adopt these practices from a Big Ten perspective, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if we were using the RPI from last year, uh, the league would be in trouble. I mean, it wouldn't be just a four-team league like it was last year, but I don't think we'd be getting close to a 9 and 10 that people have been talking about. I mean, if you just look at the rankings today between both, I mean, Nebraska is 21 in the net, but 59 in the RPI. You've got you know, Ohio State is, let's say, 46 in the net and 61 in the RPI. So there's been so many instances of that where the teams that are perceived to be in trouble are actually still in really good shape in the net. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with you know, using the advanced metrics, you know, offensive and defensive efficiency, uh, which you know, is more than just, hey, looking at scores. It actually evaluates how a team plays. It takes into account uh, you know, strength of schedule and margin of victory. And so I think that helps the league tremendously. You know, getting those key non-conference wins help boost everybody up. And now when we're playing each other, there's no true bad loss unless you lose to, like, Rutgers or Illinois at home. Yeah, so kind of to that point, those teams that might be on the bubble are fortunate that this is the year that the switch was made yes. to those evaluations. But, you know, it's not it's not really lucky because – this is honestly a, a more clear-eyed and a better evaluation of these teams' true strengths and, and uh, you know, places it within college basketball. So I'm glad that they switched over, fans. If you're worried about your team's, um, you know, chances heading into February and then eventually into Selection Sunday, stray away from the record. Look at these net, these Kempom ratings, 20 bucks for Kempom, I, Kempom.com. I highly recommend that because it gives you an accurate picture of where your team falls within college basketball landscape and what's always fascinating to me is looking at the final score predictions on Ken Palm mm-hmm. and games that you think might go one way or the other or might be um, heavily favored toward one team it's usually right in the money yep. uh, predicting scores it'll predict you uh, predict scores for you and, and I'm always amazed going back and looking so H is a fun time of year glad we'd sit down today to uh, hash it out and we will pick it back up probably next week if not um, as soon as possible and I'm sure, you know, you'll be spot on like you were with Purdue as far as evaluating these teams go. So thanks for sitting down. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, always enjoy it. And I got to say, the Purdue thing, I had no idea they'd be playing this well. I didn't see them winning at Wisconsin and reeling <laughs> off this run. But I, I'll take a slight pat on the back. Yeah, just take it and uh, keep it rolling. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Shout out, as always, to Harold for joining me. And the final segment in this triple header here on the Take 10 Podcast is with our assistant producer, Colleen Degnan. It's take two of the Call for the Culture segment on the Take 10 Podcast. We'll talk pop culture, we'll talk sports pop culture, and anything that pops up, anything relevant going on right now in the uh, social media streets or in entertainment or sports or the intersection of all three. We'll get to it. And without wasting any more time, We'll toss it over to Colleen. It's the new segment, Call for the Culture, and it starts right now. 
back in the studio with Colleen Degnan for our second Call for the Culture edition here on the Take 10 Podcast. Um, Colleen, we had our pilot episode last week. We introduced the segment to the world. You're a former producer. You're now current talent here on the Take 10 Podcast. First off, how do you think it went last week? What, what did you? Uh, what are your takeaways from the debut? I think it was a solid start to hopefully many more to come. All right. I agree. I think it was, it was good. What did you like about it? We are bringing a new element to the pod, which is always exciting. Some up-and-coming ideas, some fresh culture segments, livelling up the regimen of Take 10 with Alex Rowe. Absolutely. Did, did you enjoy it? I did. It was fun. It was, it was a cool new element. What I especially liked was got a lot of positive feedback, you know, from people around the office. I think, like, I don't know if it's you, like, causing people to actually listen to the podcast from now, but, like, people were saying, hey, you guys actually did a pretty good job. I don't know, like, how low the bar was, but... We got compliments. I think we had uh, a lot of your friends who I'm going to call like the the call crusaders, the Colleen crusader. We can we can think of a, a name for your fan base that's growing in, in your friend group. But they were you know sharing it on Instagram. You got a solid support system behind you. I do have loyal support and um, also a savvy group of social media lovers. So I think it's a great great combo. We also got to give a shout out to Adam Carricker. Who, are, who was the guest on last week's episode for boosting the listenership. Like, he tweeted the episode out several times. And just looking at the numbers, I think his, his rabid Nebraska fa- fan base and following gave us a solid debut listenership. So maybe we have a solid group of Nebraska subscribers now that are just hanging on every word. But shout out to your, uh, your fan base and, and your, you know, your social group. Hopefully they're listening and, and they're back now. So... Colleen, let's get into the culture. Let's get into the pop culture uh, aspect of our discussion here. What are we starting out with? I think I think I know already what we're going to start with because uh, it involves both of our alma maters. But uh, lay it on me. What, what's on the docket today? What does fourteen times mean to you? Fourteen times in a row. In a row. In a row. Okay. Consecutive. That's what I thought you were going about for. our about our rivalship. Yeah. Okay. Fourteen times uh, is the amount of times that. My alma mater, Illinois, has lost to your alma mater, Wisconsin. And since I've been at BTN the last couple of years, you know, I yes, I'm an Illinois grad, but I look at all the schools equally, as we know. I, you know, I don't have Incredib- any bias. Yes, incredibly fair here. I don't have any bias. You, however, you're allowed to have bias, and you're allowed to root for your team because you're not in really a, a media capacity outside of this, and uh, you're not afraid to, you know, brag on your team, and, and especially when they beat another school like Illinois, where there's so many uh, alums here in the office, you're not afraid to to let people hear about it. Well, Wisconsin had a pretty good week. I mean, we upset our dripping Michigan boys. So maybe we kind of cursed them last week in our, our opening pod. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We kind of buried the lead there that Michigan was the, you know, the biggest story in the Big Ten in the past week since we talked. And or really, like- no, Wisconsin's rolling. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're the new Drake, <laughs> which is kind of true. The anti-Drake curse. I mean, also we did that to the um, Saints and Chiefs. Yeah, you could be the anti-Drake curse because we, we said the two teams we wanted to see, I guess they both did lose, so that's the, the new Drake curse. And I guess Wisconsin, the, like that kind of cancels it out, though, doesn't it? But yeah, that's true. That is funny. It's something we didn't talk about last week. I don't yeah. think this is the Drake curse. Well, ho- hopefully not for my um, Badger faithful. But, yeah, after seeing them heavily ended up beating Michigan – yeah, in the cool side. Yeah, it wasn't even ten points. I mean, ten points is is, is pretty awesome. good. It was a close game throughout, but the ten point outcome was something I didn't expect to see going in. 
And, yeah, like we said, 14 times in a row against Illinois, dating back to 2011. That's the longest active streak head-to-head. Stats. Between any teams in the Big Ten. Yeah, dive into our stats here. As Harold pointed out in the previous segment here, that's the longest uh, head-to-head streak of uh, losses for Illinois against any Big Ten opponent. So we're entering historic territory here, and it's coming at the expense of of my alma mater. One thing that uh, I wanted to point out, though, watching last night's game, is one of your favorite players – and his performance, uh, Brad Davison, and not not that he uh, had a bad game or anything like that, but is it just me or is he not getting the calls that he used to get? I completely agree. I don't know what's wrong. With, like, is this hype dying down or what's his reputation right now? Here's my take on it. I think Brad Davison, after that five charge game went viral against NC State, I think now, and they talked about it on the broadcast on Wednesday night, um, he has a reputation now that I think refs are kind of looking for a flop and they're canceling they're using that to cancel out some legitimate charge calls like we saw last night that went the other way like we saw a couple times when Illinois players extended that forearm and Davison did not get the benefit of the doubt so we'll have to see if that balances out yeah the the foul calls and champagne were definitely not in our favor last night especially not Ethan Abs. but but it it didn't matter Uh, Wisconsin still pulled off the win and Nate Reaver stepped up and now we'll dive deeper into a little more pop culture just had to get that out of the way because of the uh the school connections i knew you were gonna let me hear about we, it regardless we had to yeah. i mean i guess you could say the badgers are on fire it's perfect lead in the badgers are on fire fyre perfectly leading into our uh discussion here that is not unique but is sweeping the uh social media streets that is taking over pop culture right now it's the discussion of uh firefest and the disaster that that music festival was a couple of years ago. For those who don't know, Colleen, please explain what Firefest is and why it is relevant uh, two years after it happened. Right. So I guess you could say I was a little bit ignorant when it was initially going on back in 2017. But Billy McFarland, the ultra spinster, fraudster, however you want to put him in the limelight, I guess, um, decided to try and rival music festivals such as Lollapalooza, Coachella, South by Southwest, and create this fire festival. Billy's like this entrepreneur who, yeah. Like right, you said, he created to... his own credit card called Magnesis mm-hmm. and is obviously a very brilliant man and very entrepreneurial background, but um, paired with Ja Rule. And they had this app initially, the Fire app, that was the Tinder of having musical guests come perform at your birthday or for any sort of celebration or something like that. So they decided to make the fire Festival, and they tried to plan this in half a year. So essentially, they built up all this hype, used all this social media, got models, got different celebrity, Instagram famous, XYZ, yeah. and really put all of their hype behind the fire Festival that quite literally went up in flames. Yeah, so... So to last... elaborate on that a little more, too, um, Billy McFarlane is a guy, his personality is like someone, you know, either in a friend group or someone you grew up with that we all know of Billy McFarlane. It's a guy who will lie to get whatever he wants. He will BS you, um, not thinking about the consequences down the road. He will, you know, always smooth talk his way into situations and not really worry about the repercussions. And... I'm going to take a little issue with the fact that you said he's brilliant because I don't I don't know after watching the the documentaries if if this guy's actually smart or not. He's clearly delusional, but essentially he came from a, a background with a lot of money, 
and he was able to, you know, at least use the money wisely enough to build up the amount of hype for the Firefest, paying off these influencers on social media, especially Instagram, to, you know, basically build up a event that was never going to be possible to pull off given the time frame that they had. So, I mean, brilliant in the sense all the clout that he's now getting because of it. That's ridiculous. <laughs> from jail. From jail. And he's in jail. Yeah. So we're yeah, bearing or uh, spoiling that a little bit there, but he is in jail, and and now the reason that we're talking about it two years later is because both Netflix and Hulu came out with documentaries about Firefest. And have you seen both? I don't. I, I've know. seen both. You've seen oh, both. I had to get both angles. Okay, I've only seen the Netflix one. Is which one's better? Do I? Is it worth watching the, the Hulu one? They honestly complement each other okay. so well that I think it's necessary to get the full picture if you watch both. But the Hulu, they're both controversial in different ways because Hulu ended up paying Billy McFarlane to be in theirs. So you get his perspective, which I think is very unique and necessary if the whole documentary is about this person, if you don't even mm-hmm. get their take, that seems a little unfair. But then the Netflix one is controversial on their own end, own end because Jerry Media, who was the main driving social media company and PR that they used, yeah. put um, produced the Netflix one. Because they were literally making the documentary as a lead up to the event. They were going to be the exactly. media company for the event. The event goes up in flames and now they have all this footage and they turn it into a what went wrong story. So... Uh, yeah, the, the Billy angle is interesting for Hulu, so I'm definitely going to have to check it out at some point here. But just seeing the Netflix one, it was enough to, like, you know, tell the ridiculousness of the entire endeavor. And for, I guess, just to, to kind of lay out what happened, and I remember hearing about this a couple of years ago when it happened and, and it blew up on social media. But the resurfacing of it now, you remember how when all these people who paid to go to this music festival showed up, there was basically refugee camp tents set up. There was no, like, water, food. Anything that you have to think through, like, toilets, anything you have to think through for an event, none of that was there. And in the end, the artists that were supposed to be booked for the show didn't even show up. The influencers, a lot of them, like, either didn't get paid or it was just a big disaster. What stood out to you, either in the lead-up to this event that was documented or the event itself? Like, what were some of the funnier things that stood out to you. The fact that you can get all of these social media influencers, granted they're paid, to post an orange tile and for that to take a viral effect on mass amounts of our generation of millennials is mind-blowing. And that's kind of the brilliant, I guess, if you're going to use I'm the saying. word brilliant, which I, you know, again... I, kind well, of controversial yeah, yeah. adjective, but I'm <laughs> but sticking that to is it. But that is actually a brilliant marketing technique because you, all these people and their millions of social media followers post a tile and it's going to be to, you know... Average Joes like us, we're going to be like, oh, what's going on? Like, what are these people up to? And it's going to be an event that if they're marketing, you you trust these influencers, it's going to be something you're going to want to go to. Absolutely. I mean, if you were there and this had happened to you, how would you react? Well, I'm going to take a different angle. Like, and this is kind of unique because when I was watching the documentary, I watched it this past Sunday after the NFL games. And the people I was watching it with actually knew people that went to the Firefest and actually knew through school one of the guys in the documentary so uh i can't remember his name but it was the the asian kid in the documentary that sabotaged the other tents around him and he actually came out looking probably worse than most people in the show like he got very bad backlash because he was basically a jerk and sabotaged people's tents ripped ripped their um tents down like peed on the, the mattress and stuff and this was all just because he didn't want anyone else around his group of people. Like, so, they, you know, they 
just created basically a moat around them of where people could go. So another added twist, these people I knew through school had hung out with Billy McFarland before. And I'm like, seriously? Like they, they'd hung out with this, you know, this not mastermind, but bumbling entrepreneur who was way in over his head. And they were like, that's just who he is. Like this guy is just a, you know, like he'll, he's just a talker. Like he'll be somebody, he, he can, he has an aura about him that can draw people in to believe in his, his vision. But then when it comes time to like actually do it, he doesn't pull it off. So I, I thought that was funny that like, as I'm watching the show, I have these, you know, through a couple degrees of separation connection to the people in the film. That's nuts. Yeah. So you recommend the Hulu. I think you need to watch both to get the whole picture. And they also complement each other so well for different reasons. But again, this entire debacle is crazy. It's just unbelievable. Like, you know, there are people that can wield that much influence either through themselves or know how to manipulate people. And again, it takes money. Like this, Billy had some family money. And I think that, you know, without money, this doesn't really get off the ground. But um, it's crazy just in the social media era to see how something like this can go off the rails. Um, so we decided, I guess, to see how Big Ten coaches or schools <laughs> would react to this type of situation. So you wrote down a couple ideas here. How do we loop this in with uh, with Big Ten and, and the Firefest connection? I mean, I think it's just hilarious. You put some of these bas- Midwestern basketball coaches in this scenario. My first obvious one was Patino at Minnesota. Like, he's closer to the millennial generation. He might he might be buying in. He might be posting on Instagram. Like, <laughs> he understands hashtag FOMO. So you're dropping these coaches into yeah. uh, the situation. He's, okay. he's there. He's identifying. He's... He's maybe wanting to go because he understands it could be a lot of hype. Yeah, he is technically a millennial. I think like if you're 38 is the cutoff. So really, Richard Patino. Yeah, okay. And you know, I just talked to Patino the other day. I was uh, in the locker room in Minnesota on Tuesday. He gets, you know, he's a, he gets the social media game. Like I think he understands. He has a Twitter account that he will uh, regularly post from. He posted pictures of his kids after they lost to Illinois, and not saying he was digging for sympathy or anything, but he was like, you know what? All right, actually, I'm getting this backwards. He posted the kids maybe before, but then after the loss to Illinois, he posted, hey, tough one. That's not who we are. We don't, like, that's not Minnesota basketball. So he understands how, you know, reaching out directly through social media can be influential. So he gets it. Who else you got here on the, uh, the list? I mean, you have coaches like Tom Izzo. I feel like he'd do the little smile and wave mechanism if he was there, not wanting to freak out in public. <laughs> I don't know. Not hinting at anything, just saying. I feel like he'd be a bit more closed mouth about the whole situation. Well, I have the actually I have an opposite uh, take because Izzo he's not afraid to tell it like it is. You see um, these press conferences this year, and he's done this in the past, but it's especially funny this year, um, just because his team is so good, and he's like, you know what, this isn't good enough, guys. We need to improve here, here, and here. He demands the best. So I feel like if Izzo would have been buying tickets or if he would have been booked like say somehow he booked his team to go to this festival just as an experience i think he would have snuffed it out right away that like this is not a legitimate thing like there's no accommodations being made and i'm not going to put up with it oh okay okay i like that stance i mean if we're talking about coaches booking their teams there one who absolutely would not would be painter painter and the boilermakers are staying in Mackey arena why is that they are just obsessed with it if you're a Purdue fan, I feel like you're not buying into this. You're so staying. Over the summer, they're staying. They're in West Lafayette. Okay, we'll, we'll have to get Robbie Hummel in on this and see what he see what he thinks. He lived with Matt Painter, so he knows Painter better than most. And uh, But to your point, they definitely like the home court advantage at Mackey. So we try to tie it in uh, you know, with our Big Ten 
personality, especially this time of year. One more here. Uh, Tim Miles is a, is a personality. Tim Nebraska Miles. head coach uh, who, you know, is known for also being very social media savvy. How would uh, Coach Miles react to being in the Bahamas uh, at a disaster music festival? I feel like he'd be there trying to pump everyone up, trying to make the best of the situation, t- kind of taking a fatherly figure role. And he knows how to have a good time from what I've heard. Um, he, he, like at an event like the Final Four, he's always kind of the because all the coaches at the Final Four will go and it's kind of like a big conference and, and a big networking thing for all the coaches. And apparently he's like uh, always surrounded by by groups of you know friends in the industry and, and he'll you know stay up talking as far as I know just through the grapevine. So he knows having a good time. And if you watch a documentary when everyone's kind of sitting around waiting to be told what to do, you, you think a leader like him could you know at least kind of get some people on the same page and, and keep the spirits high. Amazing. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen again. But if it did, there's there's our take. Luckily, our Big Ten coaches. events are running much more smoothly than than Firefest, and uh, I don't think we'll have to ever find out how uh, how our Big Ten um, personalities would factor in. Um, moving on now, we'll go from one Netflix hit to another, and this is one that I, you're gonna have to really explain because I don't know anything about it. I've heard it brought up, but I legitimately am a blank slate when it comes to this Marie Kondo this method is, or something. What What is that? This is what I'm here for, Alex, bringing okay. you culture. So you really haven't heard of Marie Kondo? I've heard that. That's as far as it goes. I've heard of Marie Kondo and this method, but I don't know anything deeper. Okay, well, she is this Japanese organizing consultant, and she she's currently getting sensationalized by the Netflix miniseries that dropped at the beginning of this year. And pretty much she thinks that cleaning and organizing your closet, your kitchens, brings joy. And by being able to let go of what doesn't bring you joy can just give you this whole new take on things. And you'll come out feeling rejuvenized. And this little mini-series, literally she's dealing with these emotional traumas between like a widow or like a young couple trying to start a family. And pretty much she... She came, she wrote a book. She's wrote she's written four books. So mm-hmm. again, I'm always an advocate of reading the book before the series. But this is one situation where I definitely watched the series first. And she's just this darling little Japanese woman. She um, is semi inspired by the Shinto religion. Um, and yeah, she's kind of a phenomenon right now on Netflix also. And I would recommend this. This is less controversial and more very necessary for that tidying up your 2019. All right, so I'm, I'd like to think I'm a fairly organized person, but uh, people close to me might disagree, especially if they see my room. Um, I could definitely use some tips to, to organize my, you know, my bedroom, my clothes. It's okay like it's for a 20-something dude, but it's not great. So how does one take this method and, and implement it in their own lives? She, she's very, she throws everything on the bed or on the floor, and then she asks you to find the items that bring you joy okay. and everything else you discard. She finds like throw it away. Di- give it away. Okay. Charitably. Okay. Um, and that is actually she finds joy in being able to let go of things. So, are there any Big Ten examples that could use some KonMari method? Well, I don't know about right now, but like I think there's a, a past example of a team in a program that has reorganized itself and kind of meticulously planned out their identity, and they're better off for it. And this actually just came to mind right now, but it fits perfectly. 
That's Michigan. Uh, Michigan basketball. Michigan in the last couple of years has really changed their identity from being an offense first team, an offensive minded, explosive team and program to defense first and really taking pride in, you know, putting together a solid defensive game plan. And they kind of got their Marie Kondo of their own. That's her name, Marie Kondo. <laughs> they kind of got their own Marie Kondo when they brought in a guy named Luke Yaklich from. Uh, he was at Illinois State. He's a assistant coach now under John Beeline. And before that, he was a high school social, social studies teacher in Joliet, Illinois, for over 10 years, I think. And he's just, you know, this, I met him the other day at Michigan. And super nice guy and really analytical, intellectual type of coach who took a look at Michigan's defense, their weaknesses, and how they were approaching it, I guess, as, a, as like a mindset, a team mindset and restructured the whole thing and has been able to shore up their deficiencies on the defensive end of the ball. And it's an organized thing. Like he, The, the way he got John Beeline's attention was his work at Illinois State. He was able to, to just meticulously game plan for opponents and make sure that his team's strengths on defense uh, matched up with the other team's deficiencies on offense. So he's been doing that now for the last couple of years in Michigan. John Beeline had never met him when he hired him on staff. Uh, with the Wolverines and he kind of took a chance through a recommendation and now here we sit like six or seven years after this guy Yaklich was teaching high school social studies and he's now um, you know in a, a key assistant on one of the top teams in the country. So do you think Is that fit? Is that a good so, so do you think Yaklich brings joy to Michigan and be I think he does. I think I think uh, I mean I'd be pretty happy if I was 18 and one right now and in the top five team in the country and coming off a of final four and back to back big 10 tournament championships. So, um, like I said, it was cool meeting him. And for those listening, I think we're going to put something out on social media on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram in the next maybe day or two here, um, with Luke Yaklich, since he's a history teacher, we asked him to answer some history trivia questions and see how he did. So that was a fun thing that we did. Keep an eye on that and uh, the Michigan on BTN social media channels and on Facebook and Instagram if you want to see what I'm talking about and uh, get to know this guy a little bit. So you better retweet it if I put it out there. Oh, I'm loyal. Um, it sounds like Marie would be very proud that they did they did her method justice then. Organization pays off. Like a lot of people don't understand. Like sometimes if you'll talk to students, you know, like occasionally I'll talk to people are trying to get in the business or whatever and whether that be a, a class or a conference or whatever and one of the things I say is like you'd be surprised at uh, what being organized and like being on top of your stuff will do in the eyes of an employer like you know your, your whole job is to organize the, the programming schedule yeah, yes I'm very meticulously detailed now do you have any strategies for like staying on top of stuff well I'm kind of a post-it uh, fiend now, and my entire desk has a million different post-its, so that doesn't look as organized as one would think, but as soon as I do it, I can crumple it up and throw it away, so by the end of the day, if all the post-its are gone. I think the key is like writing, just writing stuff down, you know, having it, or else I'll forget, so that's why you know, I'll have to keep writing stuff down, whether it be like a calendar or a Word doc. Maybe we'll make up our own method. <laughs> and it'll go way more viral than the way more. Mari. We'll think so, of something. Alright, that'll be a working, call. working project. Um... All right, before we go, uh, I know you're not happy about something that uh, I guess was announced or transpired in the last couple of days. Apparently, um, we got the short end of the stick or something? Well, so I think iHeartRadio left a very favorable podcast out of the running for best sports podcast. So there's 
Best Sports Podcast Awards they give out. There's Heart best, Radio. Yes, iHeartRadio. I didn't know about this. It happened last weekend. Um, and they gave out different... So where's our... Did, did we miss... Did I, did I need to check the mail? Yeah, our, our invitation is clearly lost. Okay. But the winners for Best Sports Podcast, in order. So the winner was Fantasy Footballers. Can you speak to that at all? Let me Google it real quick because I think I've heard of it, but... Well, um, if it needs a Google. Hold on. One second. Fantasy Footballers Podcast. You know, everyone listening is like, get on with it. This just proves, you know, how... Uh, how down and dirty our podcast is. You know, we just, we're just we not even going to pause to edit this out. No, we're, gonna, we're starting from the bottom, right. and we will work our way right. to get the invitation. Fantasy footballers. It is... Oh, literally. Who are these guys? Should I know the, this? The fantasy... Mm, when you're late. Well, I think it might be the... Okay. Honestly, I think my connection to this is my dad listens to this podcast. I'm pretty oh. sure. He listens to some fantasy football podcasts, and... Is he listening if to you're us a fantasy, I hope so. But if you're a uh, fantasy football you know, junkie, this doesn't surprise me at all that a fantasy football podcast would be number one. I'm sure they have a very loyal listenership. Although, like, what do they do in the spring, summer, like, when there's no football going on? I don't, Sounds like a seasonal, I don't even seasonal know. pod. But they won, so right, good so good won. for them. We're not bitter. Who are the analysts? Okay, Andy Holloway, Jason Moore, and Mike Wright. All right, good for them. Congrats. They've got a little more experience. We're still in episode two, but uh, coming for the 20... 20- <laughs> 20 edition, I guess it is. <laughs> so then following, we have 30 for 30 podcasts. No surprise there. What is, is that just like a – do they talk about – I think on that one they talk about the, the movies. So okay. That one's cool. They have the ESPN yeah, you know, the, amplification system. Like, I, yeah, that's, that's fine. That's okay. Keep and going. Then, and then it goes against all odds with Cousin Sal. That's the betting. Mm-hmm. Okay, betting's hot right now. I, I, I Rachel understand. Bonetta, yeah. yeah. I, I feel you. Yeah. So, that, I mean, and that's in the Fox family, so – <laughs> All right, good, good for you guys. We <laughs> we're also sh- going to take that as a win. <laughs> shout out, shout out. We'll uh, we'll try and get you guys on the podcast. Do some cross promotion coming up, uh, Sal and Rachel. All right, what's next? The Bill Simmons podcast. Okay, which Bill, is enjoyable. B- Bill's had a couple decades to kind of grow his base. I can see why he'd, he'd be one of the best um, sports podcasts out there. We're, I, li- I don't listen to any of these. Though, oh so. wow! I, I have like three or four that are just in my rotation. You gotta diversify. I don't have so many hours in the day. I gotta plan for this and. Okay. Okay. All right. Keep going. And then we have the herd with Colin Coward. Another Fox one. Um, we'll leave it at that. Keep going. And pardon my take to round it out. Pardon my take. That's the one that uh, I listen to religiously. That's a podcast that I won't miss, no matter what. Love Big Cat and PFT uh, commenter and fellow Badger. Fellow alum, Badger for you. So yeah, Dan Katz, Big Cat. We'll also take that as a semi win. Yeah. So you know, even I'm sure inspirational. Uh, Topics have sprung out of PMT that we have carried over here without even realizing it, but uh, they're great. So I'm, I've saved my uh, praises to heap upon them. Uh, keep doing your thing, PMT. Don't ever go off the air, and uh, I'll keep listening to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So, but tell you out there listening, I guess I guess iHeartRadio or media just forgot about us. It's cool. Like I'll send in the link to the, to the last one and this one, and uh, we'll get on their radar for for next year. And um, all your your friends that subscribe. And Amplify Us will uh, definitely have something to do with our, our 2020 victory. We're starting with the grassroots movement here. All right. So far, we're uh, two for two, I think. This, this has been pretty pretty fun. We've uh, chopped it up and kind of hashed out the most important intersections of sports, culture, and where there's not a connection, we will make one. So thanks for sitting down. Thanks for, uh, again, pitching this a couple... I guess months ago and thanks for helping bring it to fruition and we'll keep it moving. 
Thank you very much. And next time we chat, you'll be a big 25-year-old in the yeah, world. Yeah, birthday coming up. So. so I'll talk to you soon. 25. Now they know how old I am, Colleen. All right. <laughs> See you guys. All right. Thanks once again to Corey, Harold, and Colleen for all the help on this episode. Enjoyed getting uh, Corey on as first-time guest and uh, always enjoyed talking to Harold and Colleen. So shout-out to all three and shout-out to everyone out there who listened. Uh, appreciate whether you're tuning in for the first time or whether you've been a loyal listener throughout the last year and a half or so, almost coming up on two years now. It's hard to even believe that. Um, thanks again. Thanks to Julie Bronder this week for producing the show. And to everyone out there, we'll talk to you next time here on the Take 10 Podcast.